Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you, as always, by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. What's MorbidlyBeautiful.com? Well, it is a fantastic website full of pop culture and reviews and top ten lists and interviews and retrospectives and anything you ever wanted about horror in popular culture. So that's what they do over there. It's a fantastic website run by a fantastic person and contributed to by a bunch of fantastic people. So definitely go check out morbidlybeautiful.com. Also, don't forget to review. If you review the podcast, you are automatically entered into a draw to win some merch, be it a t-shirt or a photography print, whatever you want. It's up to you. All you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and let me know. Or just send me a, an email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com to let me know that you are in the running so I have your information so I know where to send the stuff if you win. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Just leave a review. That's all it is. Other than that, there's not much to go over. Still on YouTube, still on Twitch, and those links are in the description below. But how about we just get right into the podcast today? Last week, I kind of cut it short. I did run out of time. I just didn't plan my week super well. But uh, that's why today I'm doing the podcast early. I'm recording it in advance for a change, a little bit behind-the-scenes stuff. And uh, I do have some bad news. It is still the end of the world. Last week, we looked at the Christian eschatology, more or less. And I mentioned some other ones, but I really wanted to focus on the Jewish one today. Now, there's no specific reason for that other than there's a lot of great and fun. Now, obviously, I use the term fun loosely, but there's a lot of great information here, and I do want to get started with it. So, Jewish eschatology is the area of Jewish philosophy and theology concerned with the events that will happen in the end of days and related concepts. Of course, we already know what eschatology means. But in case you missed last week, that's more or less what eschatology is. Kind of the study of the end of the world literally means last study. That's if you break down the etymology of it. This includes the ingathering of the exiled diaspora, the coming of the Jewish Messiah, afterlife, and the revival of the dead. In Judaism, the end times are usually called the end of days, a phrase that appears several times in the Tanakh. Until the late modern era, the standard Jewish belief was that after one dies, one's immortal soul joins God in the world to come, while one's body decomposes, or the soul continues in a cycle of reincarnation into the chain of other bodies. At the end of days, God will recompose one's body, place it within one's mortal soul, and that person will stand before God in judgment. The idea of a messianic age has a prominent place in Jewish thought and is incorporated as part of the end of days. 
Jewish philosophers from medieval times to present day have emphasized the soul's immortality. In Judaism, the main contextual source for belief of the end of days and the accompanying events in the Tanaka or Hebrew Bible, the roots of the Jewish eschatology are to be found in the pre-exile prophets including Isaiah and Jeremiah and the exile prophets Ezekiel and Deutero-Isaiah. The main tenets of the Jewish eschatology are the following in no particular order, elaborated in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. End of the world. God redeems the Jewish people from captivity that begins during the Babylonian exile in New Exodus. God returns the Jewish people to the land of Israel. God restores the house of David and the temple of Jerusalem. God creates a regent from the house of David to lead the Jewish people and the world and usher in an age of justice and peace. All nations recognize that God of Israel is the only true God. God resurrects the dead, which we'll get to a little bit more in detail a little bit later on. And God creates a new heaven and a new earth. It is also believed that history will complete itself in the ultimate destination will be reached when mankind returns to the Garden of Eden. Now, it's no secret that the Jewish belief does put a lot of faith into messiahs or saviors. Now, the Hebrew word Mashiach refers to the Jewish idea of the messiah. Mashiach means anointed. The messiah is to be a human leader physically descended from the Davidic line who will rule and unite the people of Israel and will usher in the messianic age. While the name of the Jewish Messiah is considered to be one of the things that precedes creation, he is not considered divine, in contrast to Christianity where Jesus is both divine and the Messiah. In biblical times, the title Mashiach was awarded to someone in a high position of nobility and greatness. For example, Kohen Ha Messiah means high priest. In the Talmudic era, the title Mashiach literally means the anointed king. It is a reference to the Jewish leader and a king that will redeem Israel in the end of days and usher in a messianic era of peace and prosperity for both the living and deceased. Now it does seem, depending on the time frame from history in which you look at who will be the savior, there's different aspects, there's different people, there's different causes, there's different scenarios, a whole bunch of differences in what people believe and what they think. So in the early Second Temple period, which takes place from 516 BCE to 220 BCE, it states that early in the Second Temple period, hopes for a better future and describes in the Jewish scripture, after the return of the Babylonic exile, the Persian King Cyrus II was called Messiah in Isaiah due to his role in the return of the Jews' exile. Later in the same time period, and that goes from 220 BCE to 70 CE, a number of messianic ideas developed during the later Second Temple period, ranging from this worldly political expectations to apocalyptic expectations of an end time in which the dead would be resurrected and the kingdom of heaven would be established on earth. The Messiah might not be kingly, or a son of David, or more heavenly son of man, but a messianism became increasingly eschatological, the eschatology was decisively influenced by apocalypticism, while messianic expectations became increasingly focused on the figure of an individual savior. According to Zwi Werblowski, the messiah is no longer symbolized 
by the coming of the New Age, but he was somehow supposed to bring it about. The Lord's anointed thus became the savior and redeemer and the focus of more intense expectations and doctrines. Messianic ideas developed both by new interpretations of the Jewish scripture, but also by visionary revelations. Now there's a period called the Babylonian Talmud, which is 200 to 500 CE, and that states that a long discussion of events leading to the coming of the Messiah was had. Throughout Jewish history, Jews have compared these passages and others to contemporary events in the signs of the Messiah's imminent arrival, continuing into present times. The Talmud tells many stories about the Messiah, some of which represent famous Talmudic rabbis as receiving personal visitations from Elijah the prophet and the Messiah. There are also some rabbinic commentaries on the subject as well. In rabbinic literature, the rabbis elaborated and explained the prophecies that were found in the Hebrew Bible along with the oral law and rabbinic traditions about its meaning. Miamondis, commentary to Tractate, Sandarin stresses a relative naturalistic interpretation of the Messiah, de-emphasizing miraculous elements. His commentary became widely, although not universally, accepted in the non- or less mythical branches of Orthodox Judaism. Now there are some contemporary views as well. The belief in a human Messiah of the Davidic line is a universal tenet of faith among the Orthodox Jews and one of the Mamadon's 13 principles of faith. Some authorities in Orthodox Judaism believe that this era will lead to supernatural events culminating in a bodily resurrection of the dead. Maimonides, on the other hand, holds that the events of the Messianic era are not specifically connected with the resurrection. The conservative Judaism varies in its teachings as well. While it retains traditional references to a personal redeemer and prayers for the restoration of the Davidic line in the liturgy, conservative Jews are more inclined to accept the idea of a messianic era. And this is a excerpt taken. We do not know when the Messiah will come, nor whether he will be charismatic in a human figure or is a symbol of redemption of mankind from the evils of the world. Through the doctrine of the messianic figure, Judaism teaches thus that every individual human being must live as if he or she individually has the responsibility to bring out the messianic age. Beyond that, we echo the words of the Mamadons based on the prophet Habakkuk, that though he may tarry, yet do we wait for him each day. And that is from the Statement of Principles of Conservative Judaism. Now, there are some characteristics as well of the end time in the Jewish belief, and that is the War of Gog and Magog. According to Ezekiel chapter 38, the War of Magog and Gog, which is a climactic war, will take place at the end of the Jewish exile. According to Redak, this war will take place in Jerusalem. However, Jesidic tradition holds that the war will not in fact occur, and the sufferings of the exile have already made up for it although there is clarification needed on that last one. There's another sign, and that is the world to come, which is what we talked about a lot with the Christian idea of rapture, where the world will be reformed or made anew by God and all his followers and all the believers of that faith. And the non-believers may not have such a great time, but that's another discussion for another day. There's also the Olam Haba, the hereafter is known as Olam Haba, quote, the world to come. 
and related to the concept of God Eden, the heavenly garden of Eden or paradise in Genome. The phrase Olam Haba does not occur in the Hebrew Bible. The accepted halakha is that it is impossible for living human beings to know what the world to come is like. The second temple period, as we discussed earlier, has its own beliefs on this, and they were diverse beliefs. The Essenes believed in the immortality of the soul, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees apparently did not. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Jewish pseudopigrapha, and Jewish magical papyri reflect this diversity. And then we come to the medieval rabbinical reviews. While all classic rabbinic sources discuss the afterlife, the classic medieval scholars dispute the nature of existence in the end of days after the messianic period. While Maimonides describes an entirely spiritual existence for souls, which he calls disembodied intellects, Nabonides discusses an intensely spiritual existence on earth where spirituality and physicality are both merged. Both agree that life after death is as Maimonides describes in the end of days. This existence entails an extremely heightened understanding of and connection to the divine presence. This view is shared by all classic rabbinic scholars. According to Maimonides, any non-Jew who lives according to the seven laws of Noah is regarded as a righteous genteel and is assured of a place in the world to come. Then the final reward of the righteous is given. There is much rabbinic material on what happens to the soul of the deceased after death, what it experiences, and where it goes. At various points in the afterlife journey, the soul may encounter a number of things. Habut Ha-Kavur, the pains of the grave, Duma, the angel of silence, Satan as the angel of death, and the Kaf Hakala, the catapult of the soul, Gehenom, or purgatory, as well, and Gan Eden, heaven or paradise. All classic rabbinic scholars agree that these concepts are beyond typical human understanding, therefore these ideas are expressed throughout rabbinic literature through many varied parables and analogies. Jehinnam is fairly well defined in the rabbinic literature. It is sometimes translated as hell, but is much more similar to the Christian view of purgatory than the Christian view of hell. Rabbinic thought maintains that the souls are not tortured in Jehinnam forever. The longest that one can be there is said to be 11 months, with the exception of heretics and unobservant Jews. This is the reason that even when mourning for near relatives, Jews will not recite mourners' kaddish for longer than an 11-month period. Jehinnam is considered a spiritual forge where the soul is purified, for it is eventually ascent to the Gan Eden, or the Garden of Eden. The 19th century had some legends as well. In the 19th century book Legends of the Jews, Louis Ginsberg compiled Jewish legends found in rabbinic literature. Among the legends are ones about the world to come and the two gardens of Eden. The world to come is called paradise and is said to have a double gate made of carbuncle that is guarded by 600,000 shining angels. Seven clouds of glory overshadow paradise and under them in the center of paradise stands the tree of life. The tree of the tree of life overshadows paradise too and it has 15,000 different tastes and aromas that winds blow all across paradise. Under the tree of life, there are many pairs of canopies, 
one of stars and the other of sun and moon, while a cloud of glory separates the two. In each pair of canopies sits a rabbinic scholar who explains the Torah to whomever. When one enters paradise, one is proffered by Michael the archangel to God on the altar of the temple of the heavenly Jerusalem, whereupon one is transfigured into an angel. The ugliest person becomes as beautiful and as shining as, quote, the grains of a silver pomegranate upon which fall the rays of the sun. The angels that guard paradise's gates adorn one in seven clouds of glory, crown one with gems and pearls of gold, place eight myrtles in one's hand, and praise one for being righteous while leading one to a garden of 800 roses and myrtles that is watered by many rivers. In the garden is one's canopy, its beauty according to one's merit, but each canopy has four rivers, milk, honey, wine, and balsam, and it's all flowing from it as well. And it has a golden vine and 30 shining pearls hanging from it. Under each canopy is a table of gems and pearls attended to by 60 angels. The light of paradise is the light of the righteous people therein. Each day in paradise, one wakes up a child and goes to bed, an elder, to enjoy the pleasures of childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. In each corner of paradise is a forest of 800,000 trees, the least among the trees, greater than the best herbs and spices, attended to by 800 thousand sweetly singing angels. Paradise is divided into seven paradises, each one 120,000 miles long and wide, depending on one's merit, one joins one of the paradises. The first is made up of glass and cedar and is for converts to Judaism. Second is of silver and cedar and is for penitence. The third is of silver and gold, gems and pearls, and is for patriarchs. Moses and Aaron, the Israelites that left Egypt and lived in the wilderness, and the kings of Israel. The fourth is of rubies and olive wood, and is for the holy steadfast in faith. The fifth is like the third, except a river flows through it and has a bed woven by Eve and the angels, and it is for the Messiah and Elijah. And the sixth and seventh divisions are not described, except that they are respectively for those who died doing a pious act, and for those who died from an illness in expiation for Israel's sins. Beyond paradise, according to the legends of the Jews, in the higher Ga'in, where God is enthroned and explains the Torah to its inhabitants. The higher Ga'in contains 310 worlds and is divided into seven compartments. The compartments are not described, though it is implied that each compartment is greater than the previous one and is joined based in one's merit. The first compartment is for Jewish martyrs, the second for those who drowned, the third for Rabbi Johann ben Zakkai and his disciples, the fourth for those whom the cloud of glory carried off, the fifth for penitents, the sixth for youths who have never sinned, and the seventh for the poor who lived decently and studied the Torah. Last thing I want to mention here is the resurrection of the dead. Several times the Bible alludes to eternal life without specifying what from that life will take. The first explicit mention of resurrection is in the vision of the valley of the dry bones in the book of Ezekiel. However, this narrative was intended as a metaphor for the national rebirth, promising the Jews return to Israel and reconstruction of the temple, not as a depiction of personal resurrection. 
the book of Daniel promised literal resurrection to the Jews in concrete detail. Daniel wrote that the coming of the archangel Michael, misery would beset the world, and only those whose names were in a divine book would be resurrected. Moreover, Daniel's promise of the resurrection was intended for the most righteous and the most sinful because the afterlife was a place for virtuous individuals to be rewarded and the sinful individuals to receive eternal punishment. Greek and Persian culture influenced Jewish sects to believe in an afterlife between the 6th and 4th century BCE as well. The Hebrew Bible, at least as seen through interpretation of Bavli Sanderin, contains frequent references to the resurrection of the dead. The Mishnah believes that the resurrection of the dead as one of three essential beliefs necessary for a Jew to participate in it. Quote, All Israel have a portion in the world to come, for it is written, Thy people are all righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. But the following have no portion therein. One who maintains that resurrection is not a biblical doctrine, the Torah was not divinely revealed, and Apicoros, or a heretic. During the rabbinic period, beginning in the late first century and carrying on to the present, the works of Daniel were included into the Hebrew Bible, signaling the adoption of Jewish resurrection into the officially sacred texts. Jewish liturgy, most notably Amidah, contains references to the tenet of the bodily resurrection of the dead. In contemporary Judaism, both Orthodox Judaism and Conservative Judaism maintained their traditional references to it in their liturgy. However, many Conservative Jews interpret the tenet metaphorically rather than literally. Reform and Reconstructionist Judaism have altered traditional references to the resurrection of the dead and the liturgy, who gives life to the dead, to refer to who gives life to all. Now, last week we talked about the last judgment or some kind of judgment referring to the Christian rapture and all that kind of fun stuff. The Jewish belief also has something similar. In Judaism, the Day of Judgment happens every year on Rosh Hashanah. Therefore, the belief in the last day of judgment of for all mankind is disputed. Some rabbis hold that there will be such a day following the resurrection of the dead. Others hold that there is no need for that because of Rosh Hashanah. Yet, others hold that this accounting and judgment happens when one dies. Other rabbis hold that the last judgment only applies to genteel nations and not the Jewish people. So thank you for taking this trip on the Jewish train headed towards the end of the world. I hope it wasn't too depressing, but I mean, given the state of the world today, it's worth sort of taking a glance back at what people thought would happen when the world would end hundreds and thousands of years ago. Hopefully nothing like this will happen anytime soon, but if we don't do anything quickly about climate and rainforests burning and all sorts of crap like that, you never know when you'll meet your maker, and it could be sooner rather than later. And on that happy note, I will be back next week. I want to start a new series where I quote-unquote tour different parts of the USA and go over their individual, state-local, you could call it, urban legends, myths, hauntings, whatever. Obviously, I won't be touring as I don't even have a passport, but I'm going to do my research and come up with some sort of podcast for you. So, until next week.